Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project. I'm Amelia Nagoski, and today we're going to be talking with my friend Allegra Martin. She, like me, has a doctorate of musical arts in conducting, and we got our master's degrees together at a conservatory in New Jersey. Today we're kicking off a series where we're going to answer the question, how do I listen to my body? What does that mean? And the next several episodes are going to be back with Emily, where she's going to explain some of the neuroscience, and I'm going to be giving explicit instructions about activities you can do to actually learn how to listen to your body. Today, I wanted to start with Allegra, because I think her experience is going to be way more relatable for more people than either mine or Emily's. Emily is freakishly good at listening to her body, and I am clinically bad at it. So let's welcome my highly relatable friend, Allegra. Hi, Allegra. We're talking about how to listen to your body specifically for this very first episode in a series about how to listen to your body. The first thing I want to talk about is why it's so hard to listen to your body. Does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense since I have not been able to do it yet. Really? Because <laughs> I've always perceived you as very like in touch with your like physical experience. Okay, so that's probably unfair. I think I think that maybe I should just state out loud what is in my mind whenever I talk about this subject to you, which right. is the story you told about, I don't remember the term, guided dreaming? Yeah, or lucid dreaming or, yeah. And you, you asked your body, what is going on is it, and is it serious? Because you were ha this was years ago and you were having issues. I forget what the exact issues were. And there you have had been so many. There have been so many. And... And you had a dream where you were in an office building and like you looked down and everything was crumbling and the entire office building was crumbling. Yeah. And it was like you asked yourself a question and you got an answer. And I was like, that's yeah. wild. I don't understand. Yeah. How could you even have that good of a connection that you could ask a question and get an answer like that? Years and years of practice is the answer. Right. But I mean, to me, that is just like next level. It, it, I think that particularly is actually next level. I think there's like, I mean, my plan is to do a series of four of these videos, each one going a little bit deeper into like how to listen to your body, basically going in the order that I followed when I first learned to do this. So if you feel intimidated by like that last step there seems so like impossible, don't worry, because there's going to be like three intervening steps that you spend a lot of time on before you get, I mean, it, it did take me years to get my subconscious trained to communicate with me that clearly. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure everybody's, everybody's different. That's like the point, yeah. right? Like I could, okay. So this brings me to like the first thing that actually gets in the way of people's ability to listen to their bodies. Uh, and that is their actual talent for it. Some people just have higher ability. Like Emily's has yeah. always been able to really easily. And I actually, I just found out, have a condition called alexithymia, which is a clinical impairment in your ability to feel how you feel and identify how you feel and express how you feel alexithymia it's a thing i'd never heard of wow yeah. i've never heard of this either is it can what kind of like is this considered like primarily a mental health thing or primarily a physical thing like no it's not an illness and it's not a medical diagnosis it's a condition a condition that sounds yeah. very victorian it's a condition. I have a condition. It's alexithymia. Wow. Um, so, so the first thing that gets in people's way of being able to listen to their bodies is just their plain old ability. And there's just, 
you know, a wide spectrum of people's capacity with, I think, Emily at the far end of high capacity and me at the low end of low capacity. And you sound like you're kind of in the middle because you're definitely taken for granted, like the ability that you can tell when something's wrong. Well, not always, you know. I mean, I don't feel like I can always tell if something's wrong. Yeah, but I, I would say I'm definitely in the middle. Oh, you can take an actual quiz that measures mm. your, there's like a scale for alexithymia and you can take a quiz online. Um, I'll put a link in the description or Rich will put a link in the description. Yeah. Are you curious? Do you feel like trying it or are you like, no, I'm good? Oh, I could try it now if it didn't take too much time. Oh, no, no. It only takes a few minutes. Oh, okay. And we can cut that part out anyway. All right. So then I can Absolutely. go take it and then whiz back and tell everybody. Okay. So the kinds of questions that are on the quiz are, number one, I am often confused about what emotion I am feeling. It is difficult for me to find the right words for my feelings. Uh, yeah. All day, every day. Number six, when I am upset, I don't even know if I'm sad, frightened, angry. Yeah. Seven, I am often puzzled by sensations in my body. Number nine, I have feelings I can't quite identify. Uh, I don't know what's going on inside me. I don't know why I'm angry. So, you know, I didn't score like with the highest possible score you could get, but but really, really high. Part of my like musical training, and I'm sure Alexa, uh, Allegra will, Alexa, Alexa, describe your feelings. No, I'm sure Allegra will have probably something to add about how musical training kind of changes the way you experience your feelings and the way you expect to examine your feelings, especially the conservatory we both went to for our master's degrees in conducting. In music school, when you learn to analyze scores, you learn to analyze, you know, what are the notes on the page? What are the chords, harmonies, and rhythms? And uh, then you kind of gradually learn that those things represent feelings. Oh my God, there's feelings. And of course, that's how I look at every score I analyze now is I I look at the harmony, the, the rhythms, the textures, and I see metaphors. I remember very clearly one of the most impactful early pieces that I analyzed in my master's program was uh, the William Byrd Mass for Three Voices. It had these three voices going on in, in really independent lines, and then one dropped away, and it felt so much lonelier with only the two voices rather than all three. And I, I could really feel the impact of that musical change in terms of its metaphor and what it meant to William Byrd. Hi. Hi. I'm sad I missed the part about William Byrd while I was taking the alexithymia test. I was talking about that time in Blum's masterclass where we were conducting the William Byrd mass and three voices. And I was talking about how the three voices, one of them drops away and it becomes just two and it felt really lonely. And oh yeah, and I think I had actually described it as like the missing man formation when the planes fly over and one of them goes away and it's like this symbol of mourning it's like a, so i made this connection between how the music sounded and like a thing outside of music that expresses yeah. something emotional yeah so that was like that was a that was a thing for me to figure out oh my god there's meanings in the structure of music i didn't know <laughs> i know i know I, this is idea. funny because i didn't it didn't like when i knew you then it didn't seem like you were unaware of these things i was unaware i mean i was just learning i was just learning it was brand new but we were both learning. I mean, I guess I felt like I was learning right along with you, but I was learning. We were, occurred- we were crying buddies, you know, we were both oh, like, yeah. oh, yeah, getting in touch with our emotion. I mean, you were the one who was always talking about getting in touch with your emotions. Right, because I was consciously learning that because I, it was the first time in my life I was learning that that was a thing you were supposed to do. I was like, I guess I knew it was a thing that you could do, but it was, uh, you know, I think it was raw for everybody to try to do it, it in front of an audience. Like, yo, 
Yes. Yes. It was very raw learning to connect who you are to the music. Do you mm-hmm. th- th- feel like the way it's yeah. to you? Yeah. I think a lot of people have to, I don't know, maybe we both just had the same challenges, but I think a lot of people have to learn to connect themselves to the music. Yeah. So I think that's pretty common. So anyways, for Absolutely. the alexithymia test, yeah. I happily, I was trying to find the scale and then under the discussion, it said, this doctor says I score 48, which means I do not have alexithymia. I'm like, well, that's convenient because I also do not have alexithymia because then I scored 48. Oh, that's <laughs> So I didn't really have easy. to, I didn't have to go find through the scale or okay, like, wherever good. it was. So yeah. I do not have it because I scored a 48. I don't know. It, it is a little bit complicated in the scoring both the doing of the math and then the fact that there's like subscales that it's measuring. One of the complaints from the people who uh, put this test online is that it's not very clear. It's a little complicated and confusing, but at least it seems to pretty accurately actually predict who's, you know, dealing with this and who's not. Um, so let's so go back to up. the beginning when you started this journey and presumably had even more alexithymia than you do now. Or since it's a condition, we can't say you had more of it, but. I have. I have learned how to compensate for it. I have learned the skills that allow me to try to pay attention to my body. But if you stubbed your toe, right, when you were 25, you would have noticed you stubbed your toe. Yeah. So where do we get to the point where you would have sort of ignored something going on? What's an example of something you would have ignored or just not registered? Having to Uh, pee. Being angry being happy like okay I didn't believe that emotions were real until I was an undergrad yeah I I thought in high school I thought emotions people are just pretending to have emotions and acting like they have emotions because that's what people do on tv so they're mimicking it have I mentioned that I'm undergoing assessment for autism (laughs) because that shit's not normal um Yeah. So like, I just started to learn in college, oh, emotions are real. So like then being able to notice a feeling and then name that feeling and then express that feeling so much, just outright training myself to do it. But you had been trained when you were younger, you were trained that there was no benefit in either having or expressing an emotion. So and that's we can talk about scale. nature nurture here, but like there both things are going scale. on. Yeah, yeah, they're both going on. And I, I think that there's a prevailing tendency in the wider culture to prefer rationality and intelligence over emotional expression, especially, I mean, this was back in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, we didn't have the idea of emotional intelligence. That wasn't mainstream at that point. The idea that emotions could be a kind of intelligence would have been laughed at. Yeah. So it wasn't just like my particular upbringing. It was my particular upbringing supported by the wider world, which definitely sure. was praising, you know, only limited certain kinds of success and and really rewarding people who ignore their feelings and, yeah. and punishing people who are highly emotive. So yeah. I think that's thing number one that gets in the way of people being able to feel their feelings or listen to their body. So how did you like, you just ate at the appropriate times? How do you, how did you stay alive? Because it turns out your body will just survive on anything. If you like drink some water, I was chronically dehydrated, but if you drink some water and you eat some food, your body will figure it out. It'll be fine. Turns out. Yeah. But the idea of like listening to my body about food, I mean, like I only learned to do that maybe six years ago. 
Mm. Yeah. And like one of the reasons I get the impression that you're much better at this than I am, because you have always eaten very like a wide variety of really healthful things. Oh. And you cook more seriously than I've ever cooked. Well, that was, I mean, I started cooking when, you know, once I graduated college, got an apartment. Yeah, I started cooking, but that was a financial decision. Sure. Was like, sure well, sure. I'm not going to buy all this takeout. That's just like not. I but you didn't cannot. do the thing where, you're, where you started buying like frozen pre-made meals or just pasta or just tuna, which is what a lot of 20-somethings do when they get out of college. They just do bare minimum. But you were like making couscous and quinoa and <laughs> I learned about things that I had never even heard of from. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know about that. Yeah. That would probably, I would have inherited that from my mother who would cook dinner every day. So then I just had this idea that that was what you did. That's what you do. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. So thing number two that I think, okay. I think it's in the way for some people of being able to listen to their body. Cause I know it got in the way for me is the language we use to describe it. The word listen and listen to your body. I know for mm. sure. The first time I heard that expression, I only thought about my ears. Mm. I'm like, I know that it's figurative language, but still, when you say, listen to your body, I'm like the idea of my ears like, is a barrier. I, I have to overcome the thought about my ears and actually do the real task, which is not it's not listening because it hasn't do with nothing to do with your ears, not really. But it is true that we use figurative language to describe senses. Like our the English language is terrible at describing the process of sensing things. In voice lessons, I thing, you sing it, and the voice teacher's like, "What did you think?" And I'd be like, "I don't know. I hate this question. Why are you asking me what I think? Just tell me what to do. I know. I don't want you to ask me what I, I thought about what I just sang. I know." Yeah, I'm sure many people in voice lessons can relate to this where the teacher's like, so what did you think about that? I don't have an opinion. Just tell me how to do it right. Did your teacher ever ask, um, what did that feel like? Yeah, all the time. I had no idea. Yeah. What did that feel like? I don't know. What kind of question is that? For our non-voice teacher audience, um, a pedagogical strategy for teaching singers is to ask them what it feels like, because if they can put into words the sensation they experienced, that means that those words could potentially act as a doorway so that they can find their way back to that sensation again, or avoid that sensation in the future, because singing is all about feeling for sensations, apparently. Well, you can't see what you're doing. Right. It's just sound. It doesn't exist with, uh, this is, singing is a great example. You can sort of hear what you're doing. You definitely can't see what you're doing. You can't you, get, stick your hand in there and touch what you're doing. So you have you, to know what the feeling is. So you can You can't even really hear it because nobody's voice really sounds to anyone else like their voice sounds to, you know. But you can hear differences when you produce different kinds of sounds. <gasps> yes. you can Even though nobody else in the world will hear what you're hearing, you can yeah. still hear the differences and therefore it can be a, a partial guide. Yeah, it's really common in voice lessons for the voice teacher to be like, yes, that's it. It sounded fantastic. And the student to be like, that was terrible. And <laughs> yeah. Shrill and yeah. edgy. Are you sure that's the yeah. noise I'm supposed to make? Yep. Okay. Yep. And you just have to trust your teacher and like sing that way for a while until you start to be like, oh, I hear it now. Yeah. Yeah. Voice lessons are like a big I-, I think that taking voice lessons might be I also took dance lessons for a long, long, long time as a kid. But I didn't really learn about how to sense my body. I just followed the instructions. It was only in singing lessons, like private lessons, that I kind of got the idea that sensing something in your body was a thing that you could do. So So let's go back to the beginning of your journey. So (laughs) here we have an Amelia 
who doesn't know if she needs to pee or needs to drink water or both. Yeah. What was the first step out of that? Was it just Westminster's training? It started in undergrad when I realized that emotions are real. And then when I was teaching and trying to find how to apply that, and I, w- I was kind of doing it. I talked with my choir about feelings and their bodies and sensing, you know, balance and tension all the time. And I, I knew there was something missing, but I didn't know what it was. I knew there was something missing. And I, I, I knew I'd have to go back to school to find out. And I'm really glad I went to Westminster because that's where I learned the missing thing through trial by fire, mostly. Like, it, as you said, it was so raw that while you're there, like you're just an exposed nerve yeah, being constantly assaulted by music, by singing, by performing experiences, by other musicians. And uh, don't forget the judgment inherent in the learning process. I was there for it. That's what I was there to do. And it was totally fine with me. I was not fine with the way some teachers use that against me. And I mean, this is actually the kind of the crux of what I want to talk about in this series is like, it is a learnable skill. It is a learnable skill. And just because he can do it magically, mystically, doesn't mean that he's better. I mean, maybe he is better. I don't know. But doesn't mean that when he gets to a student who can't do that, doesn't mean that student's a failure and is not going to be able to grow and be a, a really vulnerable musician. It means that they need someone who knows how to teach them. So here I am teaching people how to do that because fuck that is the reason. (laughs) Yeah. So then there you are at Westminster and you say that you, did you get, what was the missing piece then? Like in words, again, like I may not be on the autism spectrum, but I am extremely literal. So like you're teaching, you're talking to people about feelings and balance and paying attention to your body. And you felt like something was missing. You came to Westminster and what would you say it was nerve myelin sheath and i it was it was humanity you don't think you were humane before you got to westminster no interesting i mean yes would you are you equating humanity with a form of sympathy or empathy no i'm equating humanity with honest experience not just a show uh, honesty. Everything I was doing until Westminster was a show. Uh, okay. And to this day, I still call it the Amelia show. Like when I do stuff in public, I go put on the Amelia show because there's, mm-hmm. you know, a slice of my whole self that I put on stage. And that that is the part that's appropriate for the show. I think that's true for everybody who performs in any capacity. Absolutely. Um, But making sure that the slice was big enough that it was real and that it was full of filling, not Mm -hmm. just a slice of crust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good metaphor. It's gone too far. No, it's a great metaphor. So that you, you had to, when you're conducting, that you had to have a sliver of like, when I conduct this Brahms piece, I'm going to show you a little bit of a time when I felt like this. Yeah. And it was, you know, if it's Brahms, it was usually a very like sad or wistful. Very <laughs> easy to be all feelsy because Brahms. I think we were talking about the barrier of language to people being able to understand what listening to your body means and their capacity to do it. So how does that tie into what we just talked about, about Westminster? Like as you figured out well, how you... to share your humanity while conducting, what does that have to do with listening to your body? 
Well, you were like, well, I think I mentioned something about being really young and you were like, so wait, let's go back and like retrace this journey. And then we yeah. did that. But to circle back to where we were, which was the language issue, all this is in uh, aid of explaining that the sensory experience is way more complicated than see, touch, taste, smell, feel. It's just senses are not limited to that. It's There's a lot more like cross brain uh, perception and, you know, wiring across the whatever, whatever. Well, I can't say brain things. I'll talk, make Emily do that when we talk to her about it. But like the process of sensing is so much more complicated than just, you know, you were taught the five senses in elementary yeah. school. And really those are the only words we have for it. If people start to use language that really expresses what the experience is like, it turns into poetry and symbol and metaphor because we don't really have words. And that is a barrier. Some people who are really verbal need to have it explained to them what to do and what to expect. And I think the lack of, of vocabulary stands in the way for a lot of people being able to listen to their bodies. Does that seem mm. to make any sense? Yeah, because, yeah, because words create reality. Words create reality. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So if we don't, if we don't have the words to teach ourselves about what the reality of listening is, then you're completely inaccessible. Exactly. Exactly. It's the words that make it accessible. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Okay. So the third, there's, there's a third thing that I think gets in people's way that makes it hard for them to listen to their bodies. And that is their perception of the relationship between their conscious mind and their body. I think a lot of people think about their body as being a dumb animal and their mind is like the master of that animal. I, I thought that, does that seem to be a thing that seems like it might be true for people? Yes, I think that is definitely true. I don't feel like it's true for me. I think I kind of feel more as like my body is this like intelligent but mystical, unknowable thing, and I don't know what's happening over there, like the dark side of the moon, you know. Yeah. yeah but yeah, I yeah. definitely think that there's uh, that we're definitely taught in the mind body dichotomy or the mind body. Maybe there's a soul over here somewhere that's kind of vague. Why is it not part of my mind? I don't understand. Yeah we're definitely taught that, you know, yeah, there's this kind of, and that just comes from like years of, you know, centuries of heteronormative patriarchy, right? That, that in any relationship, something must be dominant and something must be. Exactly. Submissive. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and in particular, yeah. I think the rational mind has always been judged as superior to the emotive or the intuitive. The intellect has always been celebrated in ways that the other two are not. And you're right, it's a model of, you know, heteronormative patriarchy, like this thinking that it's the man's mind is more rational yes. and women are more emotional. It's hard to know what came first, like the, the association with rationality yeah. with male or just yeah. that males were like, we're going to take that one yeah. and associate it with us. Yeah. You can have this other one because we don't value it. Right. I think that you're saying that like both that we tend to think of these two things as separate and one is dominant over the other. And also that some of that sense, first of all, is confused. Like we're not sure about which is which and how they relate. And also that it is um, related to social pressures and systemic oppression. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think everything is, so. <laughs> I have two, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so I have two ways to suggest as a model, because I think that not having like a, a clear understanding of the relationship of these two things stands in people's way. Um, and I think one model is described by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He's a social psychologist, researcher. He's written a couple of books. 
And in one of his books, he talks about um, the rider and the elephant, where the rider is your conscious mind and the elephant is the subconscious, which is your, you know, your nervous system, your amygdala, your instinctive reactions. So um, your subconscious incorporates your physical being? Yes. Like your physical, like, so the body is actually part of the subconscious. Absolutely. Interesting. Because it's, it's your nervous system. It's your involuntary responses. That's all subconscious, just by definition, subconscious. It's actions that happen without your conscious choice or effort. Okay. So I think this is a really great image. Um, when I taught the burnout class last fall, my students found this really helpful too. We used it the whole semester. Um, and one of the reasons it's great is because you are the rider and you are riding and you are making decisions and you can see really far because you're sitting on top of this elephant. But if that elephant decides to go someplace, are you really going to be able to snap it? <laughs> no, you are not. That elephant is going to go where it wants to go. And in order to make it not go places you don't want it to go, you have to communicate with it really clearly, which means you need to know how to speak in a way that it can understand. And you need to understand it saying things to you that otherwise you might misinterpret or like just not even hear. Does this make sense? So absolutely, it makes sense. And what it's making me think of is that so I do Taekwondo and I've done it for a long time. Yeah. And very early on, one of the reasons that I wanted to do Taekwondo was that I felt like my mind and my body didn't have a great connection. And especially in sparring, where the whole point is that you're supposed to react instinctively when you, first right. of all, you have to look at your opponent. You have to perceive what they're going to do in the future based on something that they are some subtle thing they're doing now and then you have to instinctively react to it so you can make the right counter move yeah it's all very you know intimidating and yeah. takes a lot of practice yeah. but I wanted to do taekwondo because I, I was I would just tell people I was like I don't feel like I have great communication between my mind and body and I feel like taekwondo is a specific way that I can work on that and so that's actually been one of the reasons that I've kept doing it is to try to continue to work on well, I mean, which, and it makes perfect sense to have a rider and a elephant metaphor, yeah. right? That yeah. I want to, I want my rider and my elephant to yeah. Yeah. be in better communication so that I can be a more complete being. And it's hard to explain why it feels like that would be relevant outside of the sparring ring. It's not like, you know, I don't walk down the sidewalk and just randomly feel like, oh, got to roundhouse that person, boot that person to the head. But <laughs> But it feels oh, no. it feels like it feels I know it's tempting, but it feels like I'm like I I just I just believe, right? I have faith that even if I can't elucidate it, that this will be relevant for all parts of my life. And certainly, when I was taking voice lessons yes. at Westminster specifically, it felt yes. like a lot of the stuff we talked about was very relevant to Taekwondo. Just yes. in trying to build a you know communication the capacity to connect the capacity of connection and communication yeah. between my conscious mind and my body and i think that actually would be the reason is you're developing the capacity now developing a capacity is not just like gaining intellectual knowledge it is changing the way your brain works um, and how it receives signals and then how it responds to those signals and you're carving new pathways as you learn to perceive what's going on in your body and to make corrections or to respond in ways like your body sees and understands what your opponent does, and then it reacts without your conscious choosing, the better you get at 
building those pathways and connections. Yeah. It's not going like the skill will then not be limited to Taekwondo. It will absolutely extend to singing and anything else that you want to be able to do, like, like get in touch with how much pain you're in or like what's causing the pain. And that skill is that, I mean, that's what we're going to actually do for the rest of the series is work on actual skills you can practice so that you can do helpful things like I've done with like dream work. So we both do voice lessons and I do Taekwondo and you do Tai Chi. And conducting lessons, I think, also work the same a lot. Is there anything people could start on this path with that doesn't cost money? Yes, we're going to do specific exercises in the next, I mean, like the next several in the series are just going to be like, here's a thing to do. This is how you practice noticing your body. Those are going to be the next ones. I just wanted to start with like why people aren't already doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's hard. Uh, So there's another possible image of like what it's like for the mind to relate to the body. Um, and this is one that I use. It helps me. I, I don't know which one's going to help you more elephant and the rider or the puppy and the owner. Cause mm-hmm. for me, learning to listen to my body was like being a puppy. I was just out here doing my thing, being intellectual, reading, driving, like making choices, feeling like I'm just a puppy living in my world, doing my thing. And there's this owner over there who wants me to pee outside. And I'm like, what? Da-da-da-da-da piddling on the floor and then like the thing just like scoops me up and puts me outside and I'm like okay I can tell that this owner wants me to do a thing but I don't I don't understand what it is I don't understand what the signals are and gradually over quite a long period of time you your conscious self learns to understand these completely foreign alien mysterious like you're staying like mystical unknowable whatever like our dogs must think of us as mystical and unknowable and yet they figure out how to hear us Mm -hmm. so I think I relate more to the idea of my conscious mind not being a writer and making choices my conscious mind is the learner and my the puppy exactly and my body is the the one who knows Mm -hmm. the it has the truth to tell me it has advice to give me it has um ways to protect me so that i can be safe in the world my body knows that stuff and it's up to me to to learn it but first i had to figure out that a i have an owner b that the owner's taking care of me and wants the best for me and c that like we don't even speak the same not just language but like we're just on totally different wavelengths and uh but it is possible i mean puppies learn a lot. And it is possible for us to learn through basically the same process that puppies learn, which is spaced repetition yeah. with some rewards. Right. Yeah. Luckily, I think the rewards are inherent to the process because once you start being able to do this, it's it's good. It helps. Have Owner you, have does you not want it? you peeing on the floor. Right. I'm so hung up on the fact that you like couldn't tell when to go to the bathroom because that like I've had the opposite problem all my life like really oh yeah not that we want to get into these kind of personal details let's talk about your pee Allegra <laughs> like my body will be like now <laughs> or there will be consequences especially when my... I walk in walk in the front door every single day it's so irritating really oh god yeah so no matter how much water you've had that day or what the circumstances are, just because you walked in the front door, it's like... Yeah, well. it, like the minute I get home, my body's like, yeah. Yeah. And I, 
And I mean, I obviously I handle this by like trying to go to the bathroom when I leave the place before I get home, but yeah, that just makes it less bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like the first thing. If anybody do... else is out there, I hear you. I see you. <laughs> the walk in the front door immediately have to pee problem. You're not alone. The first thing I, as an owner, do when I get home is let my dogs out so they go pee. And I kind of feel like it's the same situation where it's just like, Except that, like now we're getting our metaphors and reality mixed because our... here now you're the owner instead of the dog and you're actually the no, puppy. No, yeah, the... yeah. So in my life day to day, I'm the owner and I let my dogs out as soon as I get home. And in real, in your experience, you are the puppy and your owner is telling you we're home now pee. Yeah. Except that in this case, like the owner is like, look, you oh, yeah. can't just say this every single time I walk in the door. Absolutely not checking in with my bladder first. Yeah, so this is getting into Cuz my bladder's territory. like, no, I'm I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a pretty advanced territory because sometimes the owner is wrong. Yeah. And uh we're not going to be get like to that episode until... 5 or something. Yeah, that's like episode 5 is what about when the when the owner's wrong cuz that's definitely a thing that happens. So was this thing 3? Is this that one of the challenges is is a perception of what the role is, what the connection is, what the relationship is between the mind and the body. Yeah. It'll be interesting to hear. I would love to like send out a poll to all your listeners and be like, which one <laughs> do you relate to? Are you like the puppy or are you like the rider? Because there's this such yeah. an interesting... Hopefully people will, will tell us. They'll be like, yeah. I'm 100% rider. I'm 100% puppy. Or like, I kind of see the value of both in different circumstances which I'm going to guess is going to be pretty evenly spread out across those three. I definitely feel like the writer. Like, yeah. We, like, so for, for listeners, I've been dealing with frozen shoulder for the past year, which is mm -hmm. a horrible condition. And I'm very sorry if anybody else knows what it's like. And it definitely feels like being a writer and the elephant is going that way. And I'm like, we don't have time to go that way. Yeah. We're yeah. supposed to go this way. Why do you want to go that way? Why don't you just tell me why you want to go that way and I'll deal with the problem so we don't have to go that way. Yeah. Sounds to me you are not speaking the language of the elephant. No. I'm but I mean I am trying. I literally will sit yeah. here, point my face towards my shoulder mm -hmm. and say, "What do you want? <laughs> what yeah. is the problem?" I yeah. mean, I know what the problem is. Like I had an MRI. I have like PT people like it, Yeah. in par common parlance the shoulder is frozen. That's the problem. But like, but like, why? But why? Like why? Why are you yeah. doing this? Yeah. You know? And um, so one of the things we're going to talk about in the course of the of the series is being able to ask the question, to hear the answer, and to understand it. Are what we're going to be doing in the in the future episodes in the series? Like, how do I actually do that? Those are the questions we're going to answer. But I thought it was important for us to start with. How why is it so hard? It yeah. yeah. Oh, I want to also mention like these are the things that get in the way for lots and lots of people. But there is also the fact that women are explicitly trained not to listen to our bodies, not to trust what we feel because our bodies are the property of the state or um, because we it would be inconvenient for other people if we were to do so. Right. If we actually noticed our needs and then took on resources to give our bodies what they need, that would be, yeah, that would be super inconvenient for the patriarchy. Yeah. Um, and also that we are explicitly taught to notice not how our body feels, but how it looks and to measure our well-being based on our appearance alone. And uh, that Isn't just- Isn't it just heavy no. irony that we're supposed to be the 
in in if we had a gender binary yeah we are supposed to be the more intuitive ones the yeah. irony could kill you yeah we're having our intuition stolen from us yeah because it is belittled because we are dismissed by doctors <sighs> yeah it's a it's a bad and complicated situation but we're um, the the purpose of the series is to try to teach people how not to be stuck in that cycle. Does that make sense? Yeah. I wonder if we need a new phrase besides listen to your body because listen to your body inherently sounds very easy. I I completely agree. I think if we had the you language need a phrase to describe that what sounds it's really like. Hard, but worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. And yet also rhetorically clear and strong enough that it's memorable and actually kind of I mean, the way, like when you sing a high note and it feels kind of shrill, but also really resonant at the same time, like something that cap, like, is there a word to describe that sensation? There is not. Like our language doesn't have the capacity. Like maybe in the process of doing these episodes, I'll stumble across some phrase that like captures it, but I think we just don't have the vocabulary. Which maybe again, listen to your body, even though we recognize that this is a significant challenge and you should not feel bad if you are not already doing it. We <laughs> could make not, it an acronym. That is not catchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's not like, you know, the rigged game or vitamin Y or, you know, <laughs> the bubble of love. Like we came up with little like rhetorical mnemonic things and, uh, and that there, was too long (laughs) listen to your body is like a strong rhetorical thing it's just that it's inherently misleading in that it sounds too easy and that has nothing to do with your ears yeah yeah and that's it for this episode of the feminist survival project i'm amelia nagoski my guest has been allegra martin any music is by me Uh, our production is done by emily's marital euphemism we'll be back next week with practical strategies for how to listen to your body and until then Thank you for listening. Very easy to be all feelsy because Brahms. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.